If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. It's the first week of April, and I'm Kristen Roberts, Washington editor for the 30 news organizations all around America that together make McClatchy. Every week, we call the senior correspondents who live and work in political battleground states and ask them to open their notebooks and tell us how voters are reacting to Donald Trump, the GOP Congress, and the actions coming out of the Capitol that affect their lives. On the hook this week are Patty Mazay of the Miami Herald and Colin Campbell of the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. Hello, Patty. How are you? Greetings. Happy opening week. Baseball is back, and I'm happy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) All right. What do you want to talk about this week? I want to talk about our new poll that shows that voters think President Trump is weakening America's position in the world. I think that poll also shows they don't care nearly as much about Russia as the media does. Zing! (laughs) I want to talk about the Freedom Caucus's refusal to give the president just about anything that he wants. And we're going to wrap up with our favorite part of the show, the lightning round. Who is making moves? going into the 2018 and 2020 elections. Before we get started, let me say thank you for all of the great feedback we're getting. Please keep sending your questions and your ideas and tell us what's happening in your state. Email us at btb at mcclatchy.com. That's btb as in beyond the bubble. Let's get started. Today, the people became the rulers of this nation again. Our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Welcome back to Colin Campbell. Colin, it's good to hear your voice. It's great to be back, Kristen. And welcome back to Anita Kumar, our White House correspondent. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Katie Glick, our senior political correspondent. Hello over there. Hi. Great to be back. Okay. First topic, foreign policy. McClatchy did a pretty interesting poll with Marist recently, and I'm going to walk you through some of the top line results on some foreign policy questions on the specific question about whether Donald Trump's decisions have weakened America's role on the world stage. The numbers came down like this. 55 to 36 registered Democrats think Donald Trump's decisions have weakened America's role in the world stage. 36 percent of Republicans think the same thing on the all important question of where independents stand on this. Fifty nine percent believed that Donald Trump's decisions have weakened America's role on the world stage to 33 percent saying his decisions have strengthened America's role on the world stage. Now, to me, the key crosstab here is the non-college educated white voters. Forty six percent say Donald Trump's decisions have strengthened America. Forty two percent say his decisions have weakened America. And a relatively large number, 12 percent, are unsure. Where is the good news in here for the president? It is so hard to find good news in this poll, domestic or foreign. I was talking to the folks at Marist, who are our partners on this poll and all our polls yesterday, and we were struggling to come up with the good news. But I guess if I had to come up with a couple things, people that call themselves Trump supporters, Republicans, they still pretty much have strong support for him on foreign policy and domestic. So that's the good news. Now, I cannot share with you this good news without telling you 
we had a poll last month, the same poll, some of the same questions, and some of those same Trump supporters and Republicans have gone down. So there's been eroding support from Republicans. So I can't tell you it's all good news. There was one other piece of good news in that I tell you every week about how Donald Trump wants to live up to his campaign promises. And the one sort of silver lining on this poll was that 57 percent say that they strongly agree or agree that he's living up to those promises. Now, again, the bad news is it has gone down since last month. That was 71 percent. It's important to note that this poll was done right in the middle of the health care mess and so that it was a big campaign promise that he didn't live up to. One other key crosstab, Katie, a group of voters that you are very familiar with are the white evangelicals. And white evangelicals are actually showing extremely strong support for Donald Trump and his decision making and its impact on the world stage. Fifty five percent say his decisions have strengthened America's position. Right. Exactly. So Donald Trump remains very strong with conservatives, with white evangelicals. Of course, this comes at a very interesting moment for him because in the last week he's actually picked a fight with some of the most conservative members of Congress. Of course, known as the Freedom Caucus. These are folks who come from very conservative districts and who uh, played a role in stymieing his health care bill a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, I was actually just speaking with David McIntosh, the president of Club for Growth, which is a very important, influential conservative outside group. And he made what struck me as kind of a cutting comment. He said that when your approval rating is 35 percent and 30 percent of that is, you know, support from conservatives, they're your friends. Now, I don't know that the president's numbers are exactly like that, but the point that David was making was that President Trump is very reliant on conservative support. Right. The bulk of his support is coming from conservatives, and he's still picking a war with them. Exactly. So it's going to be very interesting to see how that ends up playing out and where these activists end up siding. Focusing in on this poll, what do you read in the crosstabs here that's relevant for the congressional elections? Sure. So taking a look at the regional breakdown, um, we can see that the president is very unpopular in the Northeast, uh, where he's got only a 30 percent approval rating overall, and in the West, where it's 39 percent. And this is really significant because there are 23 congressional districts across the country that are controlled by Republican members of Congress, but where Hillary Clinton actually won the popular vote. So national Democratic organizations are targeting these House districts already. And a lot of these members of Congress come from the Northeast. They come from the West. They're in California, you know, the Philadelphia suburbs. And so to the extent that President Trump is really unpopular in these parts of the country, it's going to be that much easier for Democratic groups. I mean, I was just speaking with some last week we're talking about the strategy to really tie these members of Congress to Trump as we look ahead to the midterms. Anita, when you look at these numbers, what do you think is driving it? Is it all of the talk about Russian influence in the U.S. election or Russian ties to this White House, or is there something else? It's sort of something else, actually. I did a lot of calling to some of the poll respondents and from different states. The one thing they all told me, and you know, if you're out living your life, you're not going to be well-versed in every single political issue in Washington. The one thing they all said to me was that they couldn't stand his talking, his tweeting, his personality. (laughs) Someone said, I actually don't mind some of the things that he's doing, but I wish he would just stop talking. (laughs) He doesn't know what he's talking about some of the times. The tweeting really was bothering people. 70% of people said they found the tweeting reckless and distracting. 70%. That was a huge number. That's an extraordinary number. Patty, jump in here. When you look at these numbers, what does that tell you about Americans' appetite for Donald Trump's approach on foreign policy. Well, I think it's interesting to see this poll shows that foreign policy isn't making him stronger because a huge swath of the electorate 
isn't that interested in foreign policy. Um, it was really a lot more interested in domestic policy. And we saw in the exit polls of the election that people who thought domestic policy, uh, other than terrorism, was important, were going to Trump. So I'm trying to figure out why people don't like his foreign policy, but also maybe don't care that much about foreign policy. And it's interesting coming from South Florida because our members of Congress on the Republican side have made their entire reputations on foreign policy in many cases, on being hawks. We're talking about Marco Rubio as the leading example here. These are Republicans who believe that the central point of American policy towards the world should be defending democracy and defending human rights. And they come to this from the vantage point of Cuba. And so to now have the Republican Party leader be enmeshed with Russia is just a whiplash effect for the GOP. I mean, and Rubio sits on the Senate Intelligence Committee. And last week, he revealed that his presidential campaign aides saw an attempted hack that was later linked to some unknown Russian actors. Within the last 24 hours. Uh, at 10.45 a.m. yesterday, uh, a second attempt was made, uh, again, against former members of my presidential campaign team who had access to our internal information, again targeted from an IP address from an unknown location in Russia, and that effort was also unsuccessful. And we had a cybersecurity expert testify to the Senate that it wasn't just Rubio. It was Lindsey Graham. It was Jeb Bush. All of these folks were falling victims to these attempted meddling of the election. And they're all in the president's party. So it's just kind of fascinating dynamic. You know, it's so interesting. There was a specific question about Russia. And the, the results really surprised me. 75 percent of Republicans and 74 percent of people who call themselves Trump supporters say that President Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is a good thing or mostly a good thing. They may not be the South Florida Republicans, but clearly Republicans across the country actually don't think it's that bad of a thing. Colin, jump in. Yeah, I mean, I think you see here in North Carolina a lot of outrage among Democrats that the Russia issue is something they seem to have zeroed in on as sort of their biggest topic for concern. You really don't hear much from the Republicans on this issue. They're not necessarily going out of their way to defend him, but they're certainly not condemning him. And they're just kind of focusing their discussion on a lot of other topics more on the domestic side. That is striking because you had Rubio go to the Atlantic Council last week and call Vladimir Putin a tyrant. So I don't know what his positioning is here, but the Russia thing, I think, is just such a depends on who your member of Congress is and where they feel on it. Not so much on the actual people on the ground who, like you guys were saying earlier, the average person has a lot going on in their lives to be worrying about every little turn of the Russia story. Well, it's a fascinating disconnect between Washington and the rest of the country. I mean, if this poll is correct... While everybody in D.C. is talking about the Kremlin, you know, summer vacationing in the White House, right. right? You know, the rest of the country is busy, you know, thinking about jobs and thinking about trade and thinking mm-hmm. about immigration and not caring at all about Moscow. So I was uh, just having drinks with a smart Republican strategist I know when we were talking about this very issue. He was telling me that because there are so many twists and turns in this Russia story, for the average voter who just does not have time to keep up with every single twist and turn of this story as they are living their lives, it is not right now the most significant issue to them. At the same time, the strategist was also saying that as potential candidates sort of take a look at that 2018 landscape, this is another dimension that makes it that much more uncertain. You know, in in the first uh, midterms after a presidential election, it's always a a little bit rougher for the president's party. This adds another complicating factor for folks who are looking to potentially run as Republicans. They're thinking about whether, you know, even if their constituents aren't asking about it, reporters are going to be asking about it. And so do they want to be answering for sort of every development of this Russia story? So it's a consideration. And let me just pipe in here that I've been asking Republicans in and out of the White House, Trump advisors, 
supporters from the beginning about Russia for, you know, two, three months now since he's been in office or even before that. A few weeks ago, I was still hearing from people, eh, it's not going to be a big deal. It's going to go away. And this last week, just talking to people, talking to people this weekend, I'm starting to hear they're worried. They're worried not that anything was done wrong, and I don't think we know exactly all the ins and outs of that. Mm -hmm. They're worried because it's sucking up the oxygen. Everything that the president tries to do, people are shouting questions. Now, I understand it's media asking questions, but it is getting in the way of their other policies, no doubt about it. Colin, one of your lawmakers is intimately involved in the discussions around investigations into Trump ties. Where is Richard Burr? What has he said lately on this investigation that he's leading? Yeah, so Richard Burr is the Senate Intelligence Chairman. The Senate has been doing uh, a far less publicized, uh, far less contentious investigation into this than obviously the House Intelligence Committee has. He's been very sort of level-headed about it. He gave some press conferences last week in which he, he really didn't divulge any terribly interesting new tidbits. We will always say to you this investigation scope will go wherever the intelligence leads it. So it is absolutely crucial that every day we spend trying to separate fact from fiction and to find some intelligence thread that sends us to the factual side of all the names and all the places that you in this room have written about. Certainly, it's, a, it's just this marked contrast uh, to the Devin Nunez ties that uh, we see on the House side with the Senate. Uh, Richard Burr has always been kind of a, a tepid approach to the Trump administration. He was really slow to make an endorsement in the election last year. Richard Burr is also not up for re-election in 2022. He's already said he's not going to run again then, so he's not worried about the political concerns. So he very much, you know, this is the most important part of his job to him as senator is being intelligence chair, and he's uh, definitely trying to take as much of a neutral approach to this as, as he possibly can. Let's pause here. I want to introduce two of my favorite colleagues. They're doing something no one else is doing. This is Bill Douglas and Franco Ordonez, and they are launching a new podcast called Majority, Majority Minority. Minority. Tell me all about it. It's a show about the evolving influence of people of color in Washington and basically why it matters back home. Donald Trump's in office. Some people are arguing that the progress in this area stalled a little bit, or at very least hit a speed bump. We thought we'd explore it. We're going to have a lot of conversations with the Latino, African-American, Indian-American, you name it, folks, who are in the halls of Congress in Washington, et cetera. Bill, who are your guests so far? Well, our first guest will be Cecilia Munoz, who was the uh, former domestic policy council head in the Obama administration and a point person on immigration. It was a personal and policy issue for her. Franco, what's been your favorite moment so far in the interviews you've done? My favorite moments have been when our guests have really gotten really honest with how these news events have impacted them in real life. Cecilia Munoz, for example, who been married, her husband's been in this country for a long time, but he's of Indian descent. And she said for the first time ever, someone came to him and told him to get out of the country. It looked like she was ready to raise some fists, but he said, no, let's let's uh, take a moment here. And to be clear, this is his country now. Yeah. He's been here for 30 years. He's a U.S. citizen. He's absolutely an American. I'm listening, and it sounds fascinating, especially because you're hitting a lot of the kind of hyphenated Americans talk that people don't like to talk about all the time, you know, that they're not comfortable really addressing how those issues make their lives easier or more difficult. And I'm wondering if you're getting into some of the sensitive 
discussions with these folks. That's the goal. This is all about the sensitive areas. With Pramila Jayapal, we talk about her stepson and how he uh, is a foster child of Latino descent. And there's some challenges, some friction between some of the things that she's fighting for and some of the lingering feelings that he has of having a difficult past. So we do get into sort of where they were and where they're going and the state of play of America right now in terms of being, as you put it up, hyphenated American and the difficulties in living that dual existence. It's not a Democrats only show, though, is it? No, not at all. I mean, we will have all voices. It's not a left leaning show. It's not a right leaning show. We're hoping to get everybody's story and everybody's uh, opinions in. What's the structure of your show? What we're looking for is conversation. We want people to explain themselves, to talk about themselves, to talk about their issues, but more important, what their issues mean to them at this stage in time in American history. We want to talk about people's lives. A lot of times we're talking around these issues. We want to talk about what they actually mean. We want to get off message. We want to ask them, how are they telling their children about these issues? I'm really excited for the start of this show. Again, it's called Majority Minority. Franco Ordonez, Bill Douglas, we're launching on Thursday with our first interview from Cecilia Munoz. Cecilia Munoz. So please find it on whatever podcast app you use, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Yeah, good chance. Let's move on and let's get back to something that Katie flicked at earlier in the show. It's Trump's war on conservatives. From tweets to statements, Trump has been on the attack since it became clear that Freedom Caucus members were going to derail his approach to repealing Obamacare. We're talking about Trump attacking Meadows, Labrador, Jim Jordan. I shouldn't say attack. It's kind of violent. I mean, he's trolling them, essentially, right? I mean, <laughs> he's calling he's, them out. He's one of your Absolutely. favorite words. It's one of my favorite. That. I love the word troll. Colin, is Meadows under pressure at home to bend at this point? You know, he's really not. And that's sort of the fascinating thing. Uh, Mark Meadows really, for most of North Carolina outside of his district, which is the far western mountainous part of the state, we don't really know him as voters uh, here any better than the the rest of the country up until he got involved in, in the health care debate here. And it's been interesting to see there's really been no pressure on him out in his district. It's a very independent area. The Republican leaders out there say most of the voters they talk to are still 100 percent behind him and think he did the right thing. In Raleigh, the Republican leadership has almost been kind of neutral on this issue. I think they recognize that there's a lot of unpopularity around Paul Ryan's bill. Uh, while they eventually uh, did agree to support the bill, they were very reluctant to do so and were sort of one of the, the last uh, members of Congress to, to jump on board. So I think Meadows is probably in good company, even if Trump is uh, often calling him out very publicly. Let's listen here a second to Jim Jordan, who is another member of the House Freedom Caucus. He was speaking with Jake Tapper on CNN State of the Union. President Trump, as I don't need to tell you, is blaming you and two of your colleagues in the Freedom Caucus for the health care debacle. Uh, Jake, tweets and statements and blame don't change facts. I mean, you look at the legislation. When have you seen a bill come forward where only 17 percent of the country supports it? So. Let's do better than that. Let's start over. Let's get this thing done right. And let's keep our promises with the American people. Katie, who else is feeling the heat? The president has called out, as we said, Congressman Meadows, Congressman Labrador of Idaho, Congressman Jordan, and then actually Dan Scavino, who is a White House uh, aide, actually tweeted that President Trump is bringing auto plants and jobs back to Michigan. Justin Amash, a congressman from Michigan, is a big liability. Hashtag Trump train defeat him in primary. So uh, that is a pretty direct, uh, I think, attack is a fair word there. And interestingly, Congressman Labrador, who is, of course, from uh, the McClatchy state of Idaho, Uh, sort of fired back at him, asking if this was an April Fool's joke. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. And yet it's not. No, <laughs> no, no, no April Fool's well, What do you think? I mean, you're, you're speaking to Republican operatives all the time. This open clash between conservatives and the White House, let's say it continues for many months. Let's say it gets in the way of true tax reform. What are the implications for 18? Certainly, it has not gone well for other Republicans who have been the constant target of Donald Trump. Just ask Ted Cruz or Jeb Bush or any of his other, you know... Uh, Jeb! Exclamation Jeb. point. <laughs> Sad. Uh, Low energy. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously it, it does not go well for these folks. At least it hasn't in the past. But at the same time, you know, I was actually speaking with a Republican strategist who actually works for more centrist candidates. He's, you know, not you know, in sort of the back pocket of the Freedom Caucus by any means. But he was saying that voters from these districts who send these very conservative members to Congress know what they're getting and they know that they are electing hardline conservatives. And in many of these instances, that's what they want. They want to send people who are going to go to Washington and say no. And that is um, certainly the reputation of the Freedom Caucus. So, you know, certainly potentially a risky dynamic just because you don't want to be the target of someone with a bully pulpit like President Trump's. But at the same time, they actually have a little bit more leverage than some might expect. And I think taxes is, it's a different subject, but we are maybe setting up for another clash between conservatives uh, and the administration, depending on what that Well, Anita, is like. that the next stop on the train? It is, but don't think that health care is over. It's not over. It's not over for a couple reasons. One, the reason that he is tweeting about these folks is it's still about health care. I know that he said that he was moving on and the White House said they were moving on. They haven't moved on. They've been talking about health care kind of quietly um, since the vote didn't happen, and they're still trying to get a bill. You know, people have this perception that deals are made because people go behind closed doors in a room and they quietly negotiate the ins and outs of a piece of legislation. And maybe they do that a lot in Washington, and Paul Ryan, the Speaker of the House, does that. That's not how Donald Trump works. We've talked before that he's not steeped in the ins and outs of the policy. He likes to intimidate. <laughs> and right. so he's intimidating. And he does think that these tweets are going to help force some people to turn their votes. He thinks people in some of these states, the grassroots supporters that got him elected are going to push on their representative and that person's going to switch. Now, we haven't seen that so far, but that's the goal. You saw that he tweeted just this weekend that, hey, healthcare isn't over. Mm -hmm. We're working on it. So that's definitely what's going on here. Patty, with D.C. still looking at health care and starting to look at tax reform, where do Florida's Republicans fit in? It feels to me like every week when we talk about Florida's Republicans, you know, we see distance between the delegation and the White House. But it's actually not the same as the distance between the Freedom Caucus and the White House, right? I mean, they, they actually have substantive differences that are not simply around ideological purity, Right. I mean, Florida has, I think, three Freedom Caucus members. They're all from kind of the northern central part of the state. But the differences you're referring to, Kristen, are with more of the moderate South Florida wing. And they feel really left out. I mean, in my conversations with some of these members of Congress and their aides over the past few days, I don't think I've ever detected a grimmer mood, a bleaker outlook. And this is from the party that controls both the executive and legislative branches of government. And they just feel completely left out because they're moderate, because they disagree with the Freedom Caucus deciding everything in Congress, because they don't like that Trump calls people out on Twitter. And on tax reform, I just do not hear a lot of excitement. We had one representative, Carlos Corbello of Miami, do a bipartisan bill that he submitted last week where they would help medical marijuana businesses 
take more deductions in their taxes. And this is the tiny sliver of tax reform that they're going into. And if medical marijuana doesn't scream moderate Republican, I don't know what does. Um, (laughs) But it's just complete isolation, I think, that they're feeling from their president and their party. I mean, here we had a whole segment about foreign policy. We didn't talk about Latin America, where there are new political fires every day. And that is what the constituents of the members of Congress down here care about. And the Trump administration hasn't really looked south yet. Interestingly, on the moderates feeling maybe a little left out of the loop, it is interesting that Trump has actually also left them off of his Twitter tirades for now, because, you know, obviously we talked a lot about the Freedom Caucus uh, throwing a wrench in this health care bill, but, you know, there were also a lot of moderates who weren't supportive of it either. And I'm sure they're happy about that right. quietly. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want to be called out on, on, on that Twitter account for now, I'm sure. It makes me think of this argument that I constantly am, am having in, with myself in my own head, <laughs> and that is about the importance of Twitter over. Overall, like Twitter is a medium <laughs> used by Washington for Washington or by journalists for journalists. Mm-hmm. It's how narratives are set in D.C. or in the national media. And I don't see a lot of evidence that it has the same kind of an effect with voters as Facebook does. I mean, you know, perhaps 2016 proved us wrong on that. Maybe he truly did win the election on Twitter, but I think he won the election through his rallies um, mm-hmm. and through, you know, all of the other forms of communication he employed. Am I wrong about that, Anita? No, I think you're right. But if you ask Donald Trump, and you know how many Republican supporters have told him, stop tweeting. We should start a list of all the people. And it's not a bad idea. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. Um He says, I want to bypass the fake media. That's all he says over and over again. I'm going to continue to do this because I want to get the message out the way I want to get it out. And I think the impact of Twitter for him really is being magnified through the media. It seems like the uh, amount of media furor over individual tweets has died down somewhat just because it's almost a daily occurrence. This morning he was going after Hillary Clinton over debate prep, and that didn't really get much attention, but it's because it happens all the time. It happens all the time. It's true. People tell you they see Trump's tweets on TV. Not necessarily because they have Twitter. It's interesting because I told you what Donald Trump's strategy, which oftentimes is not the White House strategy, <laughs> about health care and pushing these people on Twitter. I talked to a lot of people in the last couple of days, Republican supporters, his people, his advisors. And this is the first time in two months, three months where they they didn't have much to say. I mean, it is Donald Trump's strategy. They just don't think it's a good strategy. Time for my favorite part. Lightning round. Everybody ready? Each of you gets to identify one politician who's making moves relevant to the next election, whether it's this year or in 18 or in 20. And because Colin Campbell didn't go last week, he gets to go first this week. All right, great. Well, I'm uh, doing kind of like Anita and going with the issue-oriented part of the uh, election debate. I'm going to start banning these issues. I have a real person today. Oh, my God. All right, Colin, (laughs) keep going, keep going. This is one where, because it affects so many people, it's hard to really zero in on one, and that's the bathroom bill's partial repeal here in North Carolina that made uh, big headlines last week. I've been looking at sort of the political uh, fallout from that because it's been fascinating to watch both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party here in North Carolina are completely divided over this partial repeal. The governor was, uh, the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, was supporting it and pushing the Democrats to go along with it. A lot of Democrats are now extremely angry with him over this. So he's really alienated a part of his base, particularly a lot of the LGBT advocacy groups here. On the right, uh, you see Republicans who are upset with the leaders of the legislature and their party for going for a repeal of what they felt like was a very important privacy and safety bill. Um, And I think it all will be interesting to see how each of these parties fares going into the next uh, couple of cycles or whether this issue just goes away by the time we get to 2018. 
Anita, okay, I want to say first that I've gotten a bad rap for <laughs> for only doing issues. You should go back and look. I've had people half the time. So now I was going to do an <laughs> issue today. You used to the same guy twice, though, didn't you? I did not. No, someone else Sorry, brought that me, him that was up. Me, that was me. I did that because I mentioned someone who might lose something, and then he lost. Okay, so. it was Katie. Do yes. not blame me. back on track. Anita, go. Okay, I did pick a person this week, and it's probably someone no one has ever heard of in this, uh, in this podcast. Her name is Susan Platt. She's a Democrat running for lieutenant governor in Virginia, which it's my old stomping grounds. It's one of the states that have statewide elections this year. I led the effort to start two grassroots organizations to encourage women to run for office. But then after what happened on November 8th, I realized it was time to take my own advice and lead by example. I'm Susan Platt. And I'm running for lieutenant governor. Now, lieutenant governor in Virginia, if you do not know, is a part-time job, and it's not glamorous at all. You basically preside over the Senate and wait for something to happen to the governor. But I picked her because... Ouch. Sorry. (laughs) Um, I picked her because, weirdly, Rosie O'Donnell got involved in her race this past week. Rosie O'Donnell, speaking of the power of Twitter, (laughs) saw her or her campaign on Twitter and tweeted something about her. And then endorsed her in a letter. And in her letter, she made this all about Donald Trump. And I can guarantee you that race is not all about Donald Trump. It might be some about him. I've had my share of spats with Donald Trump over the years, and he's had a lot of lame tweets and bad jokes about me. Trump would prefer if women like Susan and I didn't speak our minds and stand up to men like him. But that's just not our style. And she is hoping a woman gets elected to that job. Katie? So I mentioned uh, Congressman Labrador from Idaho earlier on the show, and he is my pick for the lightning round, uh, Idaho congressman, uh, member of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, you know, it is still fairly rare to see Republicans really firing back directly at Donald Trump and his administration. But uh, Congressman Labrador was the man who, who asked uh, whether the tweet about his colleague was an April Fool's joke, and he continued, you can't possibly think this strategy is working. That's in response to this White House official, Dan Scavino. So Rayo Labrador bringing the fire, and I'm interested to see if that dynamic continues uh, on behalf of the rest of Freedom Caucus going forward. Patty? Back in Florida, we are in another cycle of what will Marco do? The most competitive sport in Florida <laughs> politics is trying to figure out Marco Rubio's next career move. And a blogger asked him recently if he was running for governor of Florida in 2018, which if you remember all the way back to 2015 when he started running for president, the rumor was he'll do this for a few months, he'll get his name out there, he'll drop out with dignity, and then he will run for governor in 2018 because Marco Rubio doesn't like the Senate. Then Rubio spent the rest of his campaign talking about, no, how I really do like the Senate and I'm running for Senate again. And he got reelected. The rumor mill is churning up. And the reason why is because Rubio has been holding private events around the state where he has not been informing the press and uh, given very strategic interviews here and there. And, you know, we like nothing more than speculating about uh, where Rubio will go next. So he's on my radar once again. Mine is Elise Hogue. She is the president of a pro-choice organization, and she is leading the behind-the-scenes movement of progressive activists to pressure Democrats to vote no on Donald Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Gorsuch. We know he's terrible on women's rights. We know he's terrible on workers' rights. We know he's terrible on voting rights. We know he's terrible on LGBT rights. 
She's got the party on the brink of forcing Mitch McConnell to change the Senate rules, it seems. So it will be a fun week to watch what she can accomplish or what she will fail to do. That's it for us. Goodbye, Patty Mazay. Lovely to see you all. Colin Campbell, thank you for joining us. Great to be here as always. Anita Kumar, thanks so much for your insight. Thank you. Hey, Patty, I'm headed down that way. I'm coming to Mar-a-Lago. Awesome. See you soon. And Katie Glick, thanks for joining us. Thanks, as always. Good to see you all. Thank you to our executive producer, Davin Coburn, and thank you to our listeners. We want to hear from you, so please send your questions and your comments and even your criticism to btb at mcclatchy.com. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground state, and we might even ask you to call into the show. Talk to you next week. Yeah. Anita, have you seen the videos from the Oval Office floating around this weekend? Was this the Veep thing? Thank you, everybody. You're going to see some very, very strong results. So Donald Trump mistakenly, although they say it wasn't a mistake, had a oh, yeah. executive order signing. And he got up and left before he signed the executive oh, orders. Yes. If you watch Veep, they show him, they superimpose the closing credits of Veep where he gets up and walks away and then someone finally says at the end... So he didn't sign up. He did not sign up. He did not sign up. But it was not me there. It's not you. It's not me. <laughs> but it sounds like me. It sounded like you. You should claim it. <laughs>